0: Radio Bio is adhering to COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders, and we are committed to producing fun and educational podcasts for your enjoyment. Please excuse the difference in the audio quality of our post-production while we use online tools to safely work from home. We appreciate you tuning in.
1: Have you ever thought about the soil beneath your feet? Let's take it one step further. Have you ever thought about everything that lives in the soil beneath your feet? Well prepare yourself, because this week we interviewed Dr. Lauren Hale, a researcher from the US Department of Agriculture, the USDA, about her research on the soil microbiome. Dr. Hale talks about the soil health, nutrient cycling, and the cutting edge of research on the microbial world living underneath our feet. This is Radio Bio. Don't know much bio. hello and welcome to radio bio I'm your host Ronnie Hall
0: and I'm Sony Vargas today we have with us dr. Lauren Hale a soil microbiologist from the USDA Agricultural Research Service welcome
2: hi thank you thanks for having me
1: so can you tell us what it means to be a soil microbiologist
2: yeah um, well that's pretty broad, I suppose. Um, People study all different types of microbes in soils. Some might look at pathogens and look at very specific functions of that pathogen. And some more like me, we look at the entire communities of microbes in soils. And specifically, I look at microbes in agricultural soils. So a soil microbiologist might do anything from study very specific genetic regulation of certain functions to using more bioinformatic techniques to profile entire communities based on um, sequencing data. So it's a fairly broad category, but I think most soil microbiologists, we are really interested in the function that those microbes are performing for the environment or how they impact uh, human health or um, plant health.
1: Microbes can serve many different functions in the environment. For example, microbes are key decomposers in ecosystems and are often responsible for breaking down dead plant matter and animal matter. And this key process recycles those nutrients back into the soil to be used by plants.
0: So you mentioned that you research microbes in agricultural soil. Do you have a favorite microbe or what's your, what does that look like?
2: Yeah, well, um, I guess I have a favorite function. Um, My PhD research was around a specific enzyme that microbes have that promote plant growth. So when plants are under some type of abiotic stress, be that salinity or heavy metals or drought, they um, have a kind of pathway that is triggered by the release of this compound ACC, which gets transformed into ethylene. As that accumulates, the plants have a stunting response. So that's why you see much lower crop yield or stunting responses to drought or in saline soils. And microbes sitting right there around the surface of the plant roots, they can actually use that ACC compound as a carbon and nitrogen source. So the microbes that have the enzyme that allows them to use that compound, when they're present, the ethylene doesn't accumulate at the same rates, and so you don't see stunting responses in those plants. So I thought that was really exciting and cool, and I loved studying it.
1: So is your focus now primarily on cropland, or do you also study um, soils used for livestock grazing?
2: Yeah, so now I'm mostly looking at crops. Um, At ARS, we tend to have a large focus on our regions and the region of the Central Valley where I'm working has a lot of perennial agriculture. Um, However, I I work with some row crops too. So right now I have projects working with table grapes and pecans, uh, as well as processing tomatoes.
0: What's your favorite part about researching in the Central Valley? Is it a unique research experience for you?
2: Yeah, well, if you study agricultural systems, this is really a great place to be. The sheer abundance and number of specialty crops we have here is really unique. So you're not sort of pigeonholed into looking at soy or corn cropping systems. You have this huge, broad array of all of these different types of crops that are the tastiest. (laughs) So we have phenomenal produce in this area. And also it's just, I think, really interesting for me because the processes I study they're not unique to certain plants and so I can look at interesting processes that soil microbes are driving in a lot of different systems and I'm not kind of you know stuck into just looking at table grapes or just looking at garlic I have a lot of different areas where I can apply my expertise
1: that's really cool so what does change from crop to crop? I mean, are there, are there crop to crop differences in the soil microbiome? There
2: definitely are. The root zone, we call it a rhizosphere, but that's basically the zone of soil that is impacted by growing roots.
1: The rhizosphere is a key area in the soil ecosystem and refers to the region of soil immediately around the roots. These might seem like small areas in the soil, but they have a big impact and are incredibly dynamic. Plant roots release key chemicals into the environment, which are called root exudates, that stimulate microbial populations, which can enhance nutrient uptake for the plant.
2: Those tend to be somewhat specialized. There's a lot of information that sort of points to the same conclusion that plants recruit specialized microbial communities into those rhizosphere environments. And so the plant feedbacks they can change a lot depending on the crop you're looking at and the type of root system. You know, a deeply rooted biofuel grass will have a really different... Uh, interaction with its microbiome than would a um, something like a grapevine that has more shallow root system relatively.
0: That's really cool that plants recruit specialized microbial communities.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They've been evolving for millennia together and um, it's very difficult slash almost impossible to have a healthy plant if you don't have that microbial community
1: Are there ways to improve the microbial health of soil for people doing at-home gardening? Yeah.
2: So this is sort of the golden question that's been getting a ton of attention in recent years is, is there such thing as soil health and biological soil health? Um, So for years, uh, when we managed soils, be it in gardens or in our agricultural systems, we paid a lot of attention to the chemistry. So looking at the NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and we paid a lot of attention to the soil water, so sort of some of the physical properties of the soil, but we didn't have that great of tools to really assay the soil biology. More recently, sequencing has become really affordable and manageable. And so all of a sudden, we had this boom of studies looking at soil biology. And we got this huge wake-up call of how exceptionally diverse those microbes are and how unique they are in in different zones. So example, the soil directly on the plant root has a very different microbial community than the, the rest of the soil. We call that the bulk soil that's not impacted by the plant. So all of a sudden now we have this boom of technology that allows us to understand the microbial community, but it's really complicated. And so it's one of the most important measures we can look at when we think of soil health, because if you can enhance the biology, you can enhance the nutrient cycling. So you improve the chemistry. Those microbes, they also produce hyphae and types of glues Hyphae
1: refers to long filamentous structures that can be produced by fungi and other microbes. These long filamentous structures can often be observed in the soil as white mats and these mats can help hold soil together.
2: And so they can actually improve the physical structure of the soil. So you improve the soil physical structure by improving the biology. So you do both. and then of course you have cycling of organic matter and other types of nutrients. So it's, it's, and then those, um, those specialized types of interactions with the plants, like that enzyme I talked about that can help plants reduce stunting. So it's really multifaceted, the benefits we see from enhancing biology, but it's really complicated to study. And we don't have a great metric. We don't have a single way to say here, use this test on your farm. And we can tell you if the soil biology is better in your farm versus another farm. Um, We're getting at that and the tests are improving and the tests tell us all different types of things, but we're still kind of hashing out what are the best metrics we can use to assess soil health in terms of the biology.
1: Uh, You've you've mentioned nutrient cycling, carbon cycling, and organic matter cycling. Can you talk a little bit about what, like what that means and how you can study it and the the impact of these processes on crops. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, So when we think of a really fertile soil, the organic matter in that soil is a pretty good indicator of its fertility. So if you have a soil that has a really low amount of organic matter, it's easy for it to compact, which makes a really dense area and it's hard for the plant roots to grow through that soil. So the less surface area you have where you have that root to soil interaction, the less nutrients are available for the plant. Uh, So organic matter helps with uh, the general structure of the soil, but also the types of nutrients that can be, be released as microbes start to decompose that organic matter. And so you have microbes decomposing the organic matter and then other predators coming through and decomposing the microbes. And so all of the different constituents of that organic matter, phosphorus compounds, nitrogen compounds, these are getting cycled through the system uh, by the soil microorganisms. So that's kind of like a slow released fertilizer. If you come in and apply a bunch of a nitrate or urea uh, fertilizer, it can be retained in the soil, but with low organic matter, the retention is actually pretty low. And if you don't have good retention, you can lose a lot of that uh, applied nitrogen via leaching, which is then actually a pollutant. So you can pollute groundwater with nitrate, and it's a big problem. And so the uh, organic matter pr- cycling uh, via Uh, soil microbes is exceptionally important to ensure that plants have all the nutrients that they need to grow and have good yields and then uh, improve the nutritional quality of the food as well.
1: That's fascinating. It's like its own little ecosystem. It is.
2: It definitely is.
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking about how you mentioned like sequencing and how we just have like this whole new perspective of how diverse soil microbial communities are and their impact on like nutrient cycling and organic matter cycling. I guess I'm kind of curious, like throughout your path to research, um, I guess like where were you in that paradigm shift and Mm -hmm. research, like was that something that affected like your path to like what you wanted to study or Mm -hmm. have you always been interested in soil health and microbes?
2: Yeah, um, it definitely the paradigm shift definitely impacted my path. And uh, soil microbes, I got interested in as an undergraduate researcher. Um, I loved chemistry and biology, so I was uh, pretty fascinated at the idea of bioremediation. So bioremediation is actually using microbes um, to decompose or detoxify pollutants in the environment. Uh, be it oil after oil spills, or some sort of um, heavy metals from uh, a mining operation. Microbes can often um, transform those metals into non-bioavailable forms, or they can actually break down the oil, and so it reduces its toxicity. And so those processes really amazed me. Um, But then I got into agricultural types of questions, because I realized there was a lot of room to improve environmental stewardship and sustainability within agriculture. So that's kind of what drove me to agricultural soil microbiology, a little bit away from remediation. And then while I was in grad school, sequencing went from being kind of like you were lucky if you got to do it, like you had a really well-funded project, to almost... The norm, and that affected a grad student I worked with in a way that sequencing technology actually evolved. So some of his first data um, was developed using older technologies to the point where within his you know four or five years, the his research was almost outdated. So it ha- you know the, the advancement in the technology increased really quickly. Um, I certainly never saw myself getting into bioinformatics or computational biology because that is not my forte. However, I did quickly realize that we have these amazing tools to survey all of the microbes in an environment, and that can help answer so many questions but it can also help you to develop your questions it really can give you a solid hypothesis where you think okay what do i want to look at and why do i want to look at it without having that big broad survey it's uh you're kind of taking shots in the dark as what would be interesting microbial processes in a certain system and so i got pulled into the (laughs) i guess the more computational heavy side of things and since i've been working along those lines the tools have gotten easier to use. The sequencing quality has improved. The sequencing uh, costs have become cheaper. And so it's all getting much easier and more user friendly. Um, And the older tools, the more classical approach to microbiology where you have defined experiments with controls Those are important now, too, because we can look at all these sequencing data, get this huge blurry picture, but pinpoint what might be interesting, and then go in and follow up on these generated hypotheses using the more classical approach. So I get to use both in my current research. Um, But yeah, the paradigm shift, I think it impacted everyone in the field.
1: So, I, I guess when you say classical approach, you're referring to uh, like culturing microbes yeah. uh, in some sort of media. Yeah,
2: exactly. They, I, I guess that's a broad term. Um, so I'll define what I mean when I when I say that. Um, some some culturing, but also the sort of carefully controlled experiments where you study maybe just one process, uh, maybe just the expression of one enzyme, or um, yeah, the uh, uh, physiological shifts in a culture in response to you know one additive.
1: Cool. There's a phrase that I read somewhere that nature abhors a monoculture. <laughs> is there any is there any reason to believe or have you looked into changes in microbial soil microbial health when you're growing multiple crops uh, together in concert instead of just a huge patch of land that's all dedicated to one crop.
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of studies on this. um, And it's kind of hard to say a single conclusion because the studies have shown really different things. So I worked on some projects where we were trying to correlate below ground biodiversity to the plant biodiversity. We had a really hard time drawing any kind of correlations. Um, Some studies have done a better job of that. And that's oftentimes they surveyed the actual molecular diversity of the roots in the system versus doing plant surveys. Um, There they've seen a closer connection between below ground biodiversity and above ground biodiversity. Um, But it's a real challenge to draw those connections. It's also another challenge to draw a strong connection between below ground biodiversity and actual functions. So, seemingly, if you increase the diversity of microbes and soils, then you increase the number of those beneficial functions. But oftentimes, because there's a lot of redundancy within microbes, so a lot of different species can do the same things, we don't see this perfect correlation. Sometimes we see it when we pay more attention to resilience. So the ability of that community to perform that function under different environmental scenarios, say, reduce soil moisture or something affects the pH of the soil. Um, but it's, it's really, really a tough connection to draw and see consistent results around. Um, so the whole concept that increasing plant diversity would increase your soil health and improve sustainability there's a lot of merit to it. And there's a lot of studies that have shown things like better crop resistance, um, uh, more attraction of um, predator insects um, to kind of help manage um, disease outbreaks that often occur in monocultures. Um, So there's all different types of approaches to looking at that question. And by and large, it seems like, yes, the crop diversification, cover crops, other strategies like this um, have a net positive benefit, but it's not as clear cut as you might expect.
1: Thanks, that was a really, uh, really good answer.
2: (laughs) Complicated answer. Yeah, I wish, it's Uh, really hard to give a yes or no answer um, and still feel like you're being accurate. So sorry to make it so complex.
1: No, I mean, I think that it's it's a complicated issue. I mean, these networks are really, really complicated. And then you also have to get into the network effects, like what's happening because these things are interacting with each other. Yeah. Uh, so, and especially if there's a lot of functional redundancy where you may not see differences mm-hmm. until you like test a wide variety of circumstances, like you can only have so many replicates.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah.
0: Um,
2: Do you have any advice for budding scientists? Oh, yeah. All tons of advice. (laughs) Um, So new scientists who are maybe just starting like a PhD program, just know that it's going to be tedious and it's going to be repetitive. And, you know, you used to like doing something, but when you do it a thousand times, (laughs) you won't like it as much. So Be sure when you're starting that you're coming from a real legitimate place of passion and love, not a place of maybe confusion, (laughs) because that love and passion is going to be tested as you work your way through um, your program. And I guess then try to always think of it like that, that this is something that you get to do, that you are paid to learn and grow and study. And a lot of people aren't paid when they do that. You know, a lot of people have to pay for their programs. So as scientists, we're pretty fortunate in that oftentimes our advanced degrees are supported financially. We're not supported, you know, you don't get that much money personally, but at the same time, you're not going into massive debt. So it's a pretty lucky situation to find yourself in. And, um, try to keep it in that framework and find a support group that helps you keep it in that framework. And if you find yourself falling out of that, then also don't hesitate to reevaluate if this is the path you really want, or this is the career that's really for you. Because um, I guess it it's not like it gets easier. Um, so, you know, you just make sure that it's something that You really, really like, and um, then be willing to put in the time. It's going to take as much diligence as it does intelligence. That was great advice. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Directly applicable.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, in your experiments, like you mentioned, um, one of your experiments where you're testing um, irrigation amendments and how that affects soil health, and the microbes in the soil, Uh, do you have like a field component of that? Or like, what does that look like?
2: Yeah, um, it's definitely a challenge. Any uh, field work has a grand challenge of trying to keep things in place when nature just wants to destroy everything you've put into place. (laughs) So we face a lot of the same challenges that someone who studies natural systems might face where we have to do a lot of weather proofing, rodent proofing. Um, We have to pay a lot of attention when we're putting in equipment. Like we have a lot of soil moisture sensors. My unit is the water management research unit. So every question we ask has a strong component of how does this improve water quality or water use efficiency. So we're always measuring soil moisture. So we've always got to put sensors in place and protect the wires from the uh, many animals that come into agricultural fields. Um, so that's a challenge. And then, um, you know, oftentimes we're going and taking samples. A lot of our summer sampling is, you know, it's the central Valley. It's very hot here. So we just start really early. Um, but we, we do, you know, have that to come with. And, um, you know, when we have things on our research site, it's really convenient, but it means um, we have to cover a lot of the upkeep, which is okay, but it does take a chunk of our base fund budgets. Uh, We also work a lot with cooperators. So this might be a grower who's implementing some practices and we can go to their site and take samples, which is great, but then we have no autonomy. So if they decide, I don't really want to do this anymore, then, then it's, that's when your project changes. Or if you would prefer they not, say, apply some herbicide, but they aren't comfortable without doing so, then, you know, that's, that's their say also. So you have a lot less autonomy when you work with growers, but you don't have as much responsibility on the upkeep. And then when you work on site, it's fantastic. We have the land. We have the space to do actual field trials. Um, but, it, you know, you're always having to set up everything yourself.
0: So you have a field site with crop fields that you experiment on?
2: Yeah, our station has um, over 100 acres around it um, where we can do different research trials. And so we have a lot of um, resources set up here to manage those trials. We actually have an entire germplasm at our location. So we keep a repository of arid plants. Um, So there's... um, Yeah, there's a good amount of space around our station. And then oftentimes, too, we'll collaborate or um, work with cooperators. And the cooperator work is really nice because you feel as though your research is impactful if you see them actually change their management. Um, So you don't really have that ability to assess that if you do everything on location.
1: If any local farmers are interested in getting in touch to maybe look into amendments that they could possibly implement, how would they get in touch with your office? Yeah,
2: So um, you can look up any ARS researcher um, through uh, the web pages and our email addresses are always listed. Um, So our specific station is the San Joaquin Agricultural Sciences Center. And if you find that location, you can find all the different scientists. So that would be great if you had a question that hit an area of expertise from one of us. Uh, for grower support, there's also a huge network of support uh, in California. The UC system has a phenomenal extension system. Um, and in our, the USDA NRCS, they also do a lot of on-farm advising. Beyond that, there's many, many other entities that can help offer support and advice, say if a grower wants to adopt a conservation practice. Um, So they can reach out to us or reach out to one of the many extension agents or reach out to NRCS, but there's, there's often a lot of different types of support.
1: Cool. That's
0: awesome.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Lauren Hale, for joining us. It was great talking to you and hearing from you about your research projects and about soil microbial health.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Soils are critical for feeding our society and are one of the most valuable and complicated natural resources we have. Dr. Hale's research gives us insight into the complicated world of the soil microbiome and how, once we dive into the soil and the rhizosphere, things become incredibly complex and dynamic. Soil microbes exist in constantly changing conditions, and the networks they form are crucial to plant and soil health. Next time you go on a walk, don't forget about the life beneath your feet.
0: Radiobio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radiobio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, the Graduate Division, and the University Friends Circle at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcasts at www.radiobio.net.
1: This episode of Radio Bio was produced by Layla Wahab. Editing was done by Melinda Gonzalez. The interviewers were Sonia Vargas and Ronnie Hall. Art was done by Layla Wahab.